Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming, when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for battle. The city will be captured, the houses looted, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, forming a huge valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and half to the south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for the valley of the mountains will extend to Azal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of King Uzziah of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. It will be a unique day, known only to the Lord, without day or night, but there will be light at evening. On that day living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, in summer and winter alike. On that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone, and his name alone. All the land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will be changed into a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the royal winepresses. People will live there, and never again will there be a curse of complete destruction. So Jerusalem will dwell in security. This will be the plague with which the Lord strikes all the people who have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will rise against the other. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, and clothing in great abundance. The same plague as the previous one will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the animals that are in those camps. Then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt will not go up and enter, then rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. On that day, the words, Holy to the Lord, will be on the bells of the horses. The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, this world, we confess, is fleeting and temporary. So help us now as we have your word spread before us to feel the weight of eternity pressing on us. We pray that we might glimpse as your 
word is read and proclaimed. We pray that we might glimpse the final day, the final judgment, when an eternal separation is made and some are sent into an outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and others received into the joy of their Lord, there to dwell in perfect holiness, perfect gladness with their Savior forever. Help us to see that day and to see here and now the great differentiating mark that will distinguish those who are received into glory and those who are dispatched into the darkness. Oh God, help us to see Christ coming to us in the glories and grace of the gospel. And as we feel the weight of eternity, enable all of us to flee for refuge to Christ alone, that resting on him we might shun hell and gain heaven. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a radio interview in 1999, author Salman Rushdie once said, the world is a very provisional place. The world is a very provisional place. He wasn't trying to make a theological point, and nevertheless, he could not have been closer to the Bible's own perspective on the world that we currently inhabit. Our world is a provisional place. It is temporary. It is passing. There is a world to come. And understanding that this world is temporary helps us to live faithfully in it. You know, uncertainty about the future exerts a tremendous influence on our lives, doesn't it? And on our present actions. We hedge, we dodge, we procrastinate, we get trapped in indecision. Sometimes we're overcome with fear. But it doesn't have to be that way, at least as far as the big picture is concerned. If you knew how it was all going to end, wouldn't that help you come off the fence. If you knew how history would play out at its conclusion, if you could see the end from our vantage point here, right in the middle, wouldn't you think differently about how you're responding to Jesus and to his gospel? Well, friends, we can know how the end will come. We can know how history will conclude. And this is the message of Zechariah 14. And understanding it ought to change everything for us. Though understanding it is the trick. But understanding it should dispel fear and help us to begin to live in trust and in confidence. And perhaps for even for some of us to help us get off the fence and buy in, as it were, to the truths of the Christian gospel. Today we're concluding our study in the book of Zechariah. And throughout this book, the prophet has encouraged God's people who had returned from exile in Babylon to the ruined city of Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple and starting life again. And much of his encouragement, at least from chapter 9 onwards, has turned their gaze not to the very end of history, but to the middle of it. Right? He points them to the Messiah, to the shepherd king, who would come, at that, who was then to come. He points them to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his cross, explains how to live in the light of his coming. But now as we reach the final chapter of his book, we'll see him lift the gaze of the returned exiles of Jerusalem, and our gaze along with them, to a more distant horizon. He points to the conclusion of all time, all history. He exposes the temporary state of this world and points our attention instead to the world that is to come. And so Zechariah wants to help you to get off the fence this morning, to bend your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in view of what he has to tell us about how this world is going to end. And so here's the big idea for our passage this morning. On the last day, the Lord Jesus will return in glory to rout every enemy 
reign over his renewed creation, and receive the eternal worship of his people. That's what I want us to believe this morning, to live in light of that. So if not there already, turn to Zechariah 14. And before we begin, I want to set the scene so that we can approach this passage rightly. Martin Luther's commentary on the 14th chapter of Zechariah begins with words that are less than encouraging. He writes, Here, in this chapter, I give up. For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. Well, it's a difficult chapter, and there are different views regarding its interpretation. Big picture, right? We see it speaks of a great battle when all the nations will gather against Jerusalem, plundering it with great violence. And then after this, the Lord will come with all his holy ones and with great cosmic disturbances to establish his reign of peace. And the main question has to do with the sense in which we should understand this prophecy being fulfilled. And there are, to simplify it, three main views. First sees this chapter as a symbolic description of the church age instead of literal events that will take place at a specific place and time. Right, the kind of statements made in this chapter are similar to ones we've seen earlier. Uh, people being thrown into panic, cosmic upheaval, great battles. Uh, it's been used in generally in prophetic literature to speak of God's coming to judge or save his people in our present era. So we need not understand them literally or as applying to any one specific situation. However, the New Testament shows Zechariah 9, verse 9, being literally fulfilled when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. We saw that. The verses prior to our passage, chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, are said by Jesus himself to be fulfilled in his death. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So on what grounds then should we now declare this final prophecy as merely symbolic? Well, according to the second view, Zechariah 14 predicts a, a physical attack on the city of Jerusalem in the future in which it is conquered and ravaged. The Lord Jesus will then literally return to the Mount of Olives from which Acts 1.11 tells us that he ascended. And his coming will cause a physical split of that barrier to the east of Jerusalem so that the people escape, after which the Lord will establish his rule on earth from a throne in that city. And so this is a literal description of what will occur after the return of Christ during the millennial kingdom mentioned in Revelation 20. Now the first view is right to urge caution, taking symbolic apocalyptic presentations as literal depictions of events. Right? This is simply not how that genre functions. Second view is right, however, insisting that this points to actual events that will happen in the future. And verses 6 and 7 indicate a a cataclysmic transformation of the order of nature, which Revelation 21 also describes. Verses 8 through 11 speak of blessings for God's city that are repeated in Revelation 22. And so the second view is right to demand some literal fulfillment of these prophecies. Now, I think the third view strikes a balance between the first two. This view observes that Zechariah 14 completes the historical progression that we followed all through these final oracles that began in chapter 9. The great bulk of these prophecies focus on the first coming of the true king, his rejection by the people, God's subsequent judgment on Jerusalem, and then the cleansing of the many who looked on the one they had pierced and are saved, all taking place in our present gospel age. And so as we follow the progression of redemptive history, the next great event after the first coming of Christ... And the spreading of the gospel is his second coming, to vindicate his oppressed people, to judge the wicked, to bring his eternal reign of blessing and peace. And I believe that is what chapter 14 brings to our view. 
symbolizes the last great struggle of the powers of evil with God's people, which is ended by the coming of Christ in great power and the complete establishment of his kingdom of glory. Now, I want to say one more brief word about the structure of this passage. Biblical prophecy often takes up a topic and then develops it from one point of view, and then it takes it up again from, and develops it from another perspective. And so when one speech is heard with the background of the other in mind, they function kind of like the left and the right speakers of a stereo, and you've got a surround sound. Maybe you've listened to a song before, you've got one headphone doing one thing and the other headphone's doing another piece of the music, and together you hear the whole song, get the full experience. And I think that's what we have here. So in verses 1 through 11, Zechariah sounds the first stereo, right? There's a sequence of final events, so a battle between good and evil, the Lord's victorious return, and the transformation of the whole world. And then in verses 12 to 21, the prophet presses repeat. It's as though he goes back to the beginning and looks at the same sequence of events with different nuances to show us different details and give us a fuller picture of the world to come. All right, so with those categories in mind, let's listen to the first stereo in verses 1 through 11. And the events here unfold in three great movements. In verses 1 to 2, our focus is on the city ransacked. Then in verses 3 to 5, the conqueror returns. And then in verses 6 to 11, we see the consummated reign. So look at verses 1 to 2, first of all, the city ransacked. The scene that opens in verses 1 to 2 is frankly devastating, <laughs> terrible, disturbing. Jerusalem, the city of God, the church, is overwhelmed by the brutality of the nations. Their, their goods are despoiled, their houses plundered, their women abused, and a new exile is imposed. If you were among Zechariah's original hearers, this would be a profoundly distressing message to hear. Your grandparents remembered what it was like when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and sent the population off into bondage. Now the prophet's speaking about another defeat and another exile to come. The rest of the people will not be removed, verse 2. That would have been a small comfort, right? But all in all, this would have been a deeply disappointing message, at least at the beginning. <clears throat> Yet as we saw last week, God, Zechariah wants God's people to have appropriate expectations as we face the future. Here's the world's final response to God's Jerusalem, to the church of Jesus Christ. It is rejection, opposition, hostility, violence, exclusion, exile. There have been seasons of influence, of revival, of gospel progress all throughout church history, and we have grounds to look for still more to come. And yet we ought not imagine that the world, that the world will ever turn wholesale to the Lord Jesus and to his church. The world hates Christ, hates Christianity, hates Christians. We're seeing this even in our own cultural context today, where, as we're not, evidence of, evidences of this great fact. The city, the people of God, ransacked. But then look at verse 3. Just as the clouds of suffering and persecution seem to blot out all, all hope entirely, right just then the light pierces into the darkness. At the height of worldly opposition, just then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. Here's the Lord, right, our warrior God. The rage of the world will, in the end, dash itself to pieces like waves breaking on the rock of divine wrath and justice when he comes, in the end, to judge. And verses 4 and 5 tell us more about that day, although rather obscurely. Verse 4, we learn that the Lord God will stand on the mountain of olives. He will 
split the mountain in two to make a valley into which, verse 5, God's people will flee and find safety. References made there to an earthquake that occurred during the reign of King Uzziah in the middle of the 8th century B.C. And the upheaval that will occur when the Lord comes to destroy his enemies and to defend his church will be like that earthquake, still living in the memory of God's people when Zechariah wrote this, only now it's going to be on a much larger scale. And like that earthquake, the people of God will flee and they'll find a way of escape, right? Just as God split the Red Sea and the people walked safely through during the Exodus, so he will split the Mountain of Olives to rescue his people. And again, the imagery he's using here is apocalyptic imagery. He's using natural phenomena, right? Mountains splitting, a great ravine forming, right? Using natural phenomena as a kind of code not to tell us about the last day as though geography would be the object of our attention, right? He's not really interested in that when the Lord comes to judge and the seismic effects of the end of the world. This point is not topographical, right? It's theological, right? He wants us to grasp that God will move heaven and earth to keep safe and protect his people. That's the point. In graphic, powerful, concrete imagery here, God will move heaven and earth to protect and make a safe way for his people, right? Not that we should look for the Mountain of Olives to literally split in half someday, but rather that the presence of God on the last day enlists creation itself in the defense and preservation of the church, even amidst the worst opposition and hostility and violence of the world. And yet that the Mount of Olives is mentioned specifically here is important. According to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23, at the first exile, when the captives were taken away into Babylon, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in Jerusalem. And Ezekiel says, it stood on the mountain on the east of the city, right? That is the Mount of Olives. And here in Zechariah 14, the message is that the Lord, who departed from this mountain, now, at long last, has returned to his people, never to leave them again. The Mount of Olives, if you remember, was the site of much of our Lord Jesus' own public ministry during the days of his first coming. It was from this very mountain that he ascended into heaven. And here the astonished disciples were reminded that Jesus would return in the same way in which he departed. And in verses 4 to 5, we really are simply being pointed to that very same moment when all the exile will be over, all the opposition will be undone. Then the Lord my God will come, Zechariah says. Notice he interjects there personally. The Lord my God. As if he can't contain his joy at the prospect. Oh Lord my God. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. He will come back just as he went away. His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives once more. At the close of history, every eye shall see him. Justice will be done. The holy angels will be with him. The saints who have gone before us will be with him. And they'll be joined by the whole church that remains, still suffering on earth, only now at last, triumphant, taking their place in Christ's victory procession. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you thought much about Jesus coming back? Have you become so overwhelmed by yesterday and today and tomorrow that you've not lifted your eyes to the end for a while? Maybe Zachariah is saying to you this morning, you need to lift your gaze to the limits of your vision. Remember the final day when Christ's victory will be revealed. And cling to him and trust him. Remember his promise and live in its light. Jesus is coming back, remember. One day, justice will be done. One day, everything sad will come untrue. One day, every wound will be healed and every tear wiped from your eyes. Jesus is coming back. The end is coming. Christ will come soon, and he will preserve you and keep you until that day. 
Then thirdly, notice the consummated reign. When Jesus returns, it is not just the putting to rights the wrongs and injustices of an evil world. The cosmos itself will respond to the eternal reign of Christ in a radical recreation. Look at verses 6 and 7. On that day, there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish, Zechariah says. That last phrase is difficult in the Hebrew. Here's, here's more of a literal rendering. Verse 6, on that day there will be no light. The precious ones, I think probably meaning the heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars, will congeal or will grow dim. We see this imagery in other scriptures. Isaiah 13, verse 10, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. Joel 3, verse 15, the sun and moon will grow grow dark and the stars will cease their shining. Jesus himself, Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So as Christ's reign dawns, creation undergoes an astonishing upheaval. It will be a unique day, verse 7, a singular, unprecedented day. Literally day one, right, of the new creation. Just hearkening back to Genesis, one day. Standing all on its own in history. A day known only to the Lord when a new light will dawn. Notice, right? No longer will night and day alternate because there will no longer be sun and moon. (laughs) But in evening time, right? What is going to prevail? The darkness or the light? The light. Never to have darkness again. In the evening there will be light. Creation itself is being remade here. Revelation 21 verse 23 says, The city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here the light is permanent, no more darkness ever again. Also, recalling the original creation in which a river flowed from Eden, so here, verse 8, you see a mighty river runs. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet Ezekiel foresaw a day when, from a renewed temple, a river of living water would flow with such potency that when it reached the Dead Sea, it would turn the salt water to fresh water, and it would teem with life. And that temple to come in Ezekiel's vision would be a kind of Eden restored, a sanctuary in which God would once again meet with his people. And here, Zechariah is taking up the very same theme, only now it's not a physical, literal temple, it's the city, right? Remember, the people are the city, the people are the temple from which this life-giving river flows. And all of these images, right, the Garden of Eden, the temple, the city, they combine in the book of Revelation. We read earlier, Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. God is going to make creation new one day. When Jesus comes back, everything will be turned upside down and made over. Death and decay will be excluded. The world will be full of light and life. And at its center will be the exalted Jesus Christ, the throne of God and of the Lamb, from whose throne both light and the river of life will flow. And all existence, everything, will find itself newly centered on him. Right? He will be our sun and our moon. He'll be the unending fountain of soul-satisfying, life-giving water. Everything in that newly created order will be so configured so that its very constitution will proclaim 
It's dependence, complete dependence on King Jesus. But you know what's astonishing about all of this is that Jesus told us we can begin to taste something of that world to come even now, ahead of time. Right? It's one of the ways that actually that you know it's coming. You get to taste the reality in advance. Jesus said in John 7, verse 38, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. Right? The water of life is already running, already flowing to believing hearts. We saw that last week. The fountain that's been opened. The new Jerusalem under construction here, right, already has the life-giving supply of grace flowing from the throne of the Lamb to every heart that trusts Him. And He can be so thirst-quenching, can He? And He will be perfectly to all who dwell with Him in glory. And He can be so now, here, for you. Living water flows from Him, available to all who would come to the well of salvation and drink. So, the Lamb comes and brings rivers of living water perfectly in the age to come. And why does he do that? Why will this new creation be like this? Verse 9 gives us the reason. On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. The Lord alone and his name alone. Right? This was the central confession of faith of God's people. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? He is one already, but Zechariah is saying in his reign, his unique claim to be God alone will on that day at last be uncontested, unrivaled. All false gods will be brought low. All empty religion will cease. Every idol will be shattered. God will reign in Christ by his spirit forever. One God, world without end. Amen and amen. And because he will reign uncontested, unrivaled, because his victory will be absolute and total and complete, Every child of his will rest secure, unharmed, undisturbed, in endless joy, face to face with their Savior. Verse 10. All the land from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will be changed into a plain. But Jerusalem will be raised up and will remain on its site from the Benjamin Gate to the place of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the royal winepresses. So, you put this all together, you have another reordering of the landscape. Only this time, Zechariah's point right, is not that God's providing an escape route for a suffering church. This time, it's to demonstrate the security and the supremacy of the church. Now that the Lamb has won his final victory, right? All the hills are leveled, and the landscape all around becomes a plain, and there's only one elevated place. It's the New Jerusalem. Every eye can see it, and it's the people, Right? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you on the last day. And the city will be filled, verse 11, with citizens. There will never again be a curse. Revelation, again, 22, verse 3, nothing accursed will ever enter into it. God's people will dwell in complete, unending security. Never another division. Never another moment's tension. Never another day when between believing hearts there's friction. Just peace. Well, brothers and sisters, fear dies when you know that victory is assured. Anxiety withers when you know your destiny is secure. Christ's people still face opposition, deep discouragement, division in this world. And so the prophet shows us how it's all going to turn out in the end. He shows us the perfect victory of the Lamb. He shows us the complete security of God's people. And he shows us the perfect justice of God on the wicked. 
You know, maybe some of us need to meditate more on heaven's eternal joys than we have been. It will help as an antidote to this world of sin and misery. It may help dispel life's temporary fears to remember you're not the king of your own life. You do not preside over your own destiny. And your security does not rest in your own hands. Not today, not tomorrow, not even for eternity. You rest utterly secure in the victory, the sure and certain victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Zechariah wants us to lift our eyes to the finish line so that we may run the race with endurance and make our journey safely home. Well, that's stereo one. On the last day, the Lord Jesus will return in glory to rout every enemy, reign over his renewed creation, and receive the eternal worship of his people. And as we turn to verses 12 to 21, the prophet plays that entire piece again. And here I want you to notice the two destinies that await all people. In verses 12 to 15, we have a, a chilling picture of the wrath of God on the wicked. The horror of hell, sobering and graphic. And then in verses 20 and 21, we have a picture of the blessing of God on his people, the holiness of heaven. And then in between those two poles in verses 16 to 19, we see the great distinguishing mark that will determine the destiny of everyone sent either to the eternal judgment of God or received into the glorious bliss of heaven, the harvest of humanity. I want us to think about each of those now. Let's look at verses 12 through 15 first. You recall this chapter opened with a, a de the description of the destruction meted out upon the church by her enemies, right? This world living in rebellion against God. Verses 1 and 2 gave us a clear picture, clear picture of the plundering and the suffering of the church. And then in verse 3, we saw the sudden dramatic intervention of Christ comes to fight for his people and judge the wicked. And now in verses 12 to 15, Zechariah comes back to that moment to show us what it's going to mean to suffer the wrath of the Lord Jesus when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Notice carefully with me how Zechariah describes the wrath of Christ as a, a threefold judgment. First, he says there will be a physical plague. This will be the plague with which the Lord strikes all the people who have warred against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Probably the most chilling statement in this whole prophecy. One of the most chilling in Holy Scripture pictures the enemies of God and his church overtaken by a plague against which they are utterly powerless, absolutely unable to resist it. They can fight and plunder and torment the church, and yet against this power, the wrath of God, against this they can do nothing. And it ravages their entire persons, right? Flesh dissolves, bodies disintegrate, eyes and tongues rot. It's a terrible picture but a picture consistent with the teaching of the New Testament regarding the realities that await any unrepentant sinner as they face the wrath and the curse of God. If today you are not a Christian, this is the destiny waiting for you unless you repent and believe the gospel and flee for refuge to Jesus. No one spoke more frequently, more graphically, about this awful reality than the Lord Jesus himself. The one who came to bring good news did not hide the horror and reality of hell from which he died to rescue us. He wants us to be clear. It's hard to look at, yet we need to see it. 
So in Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus speaks about hell as the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Luke 13, verse 19, we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, in which the rich man is sent for his sin to hell, and Jesus says he's in torment. He longs that Abraham would dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. So the rich man says he's in torment, agony in this flame. Thirst, darkness, fire. Those are the images that our Savior, the Lord Jesus, uses. No less terrible are they than Zechariah's imagery here, as hell's reality, as hell's horrors are described. And these are only pictures, aren't they? Right? They're metaphors that describe something far worse. The reality transcends the metaphor. Friends, in the world to come, our characters are fixed and unchangeable. There is no repentance in hell, and there is no backsliding in heaven. The one you became in life as you responded either in faith and repentance to the gospel or in rejection and rebellion to the gospel, that is who you will be forever. Revelation 22, verse 11. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. One author writes, Hell is the complete decay of the inner life, the unending deterioration of the psyche, as all the restraints of common grace are withdrawn, and we are given over to the horror that we have chosen, as the wrath of God is poured out upon us, and we are surrendered and given up to the darkness of our own spiritual corruption. There is waiting for anyone who rejects the lordship of Jesus Christ only the blackness of darkness forever. A physical plague pointing to the horror of eternal, conscious punishment in hell. There's also a relational panic that Zechariah describes. Look at verse 13. On that day, a great panic from the Lord will be among them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will rise against the other. This is a scene that's been repeated in Israel's history. One thinks of the story of Gideon, Judges chapter 7. God made the men of Midian turn in their panic on one another and destroy themselves as the people stand and shout the praises of God. One thinks of the scene in 2 Chronicles 20 when the people under King Jehoshaphat sang praises to God while the men of Ammon and Moab destroyed the men of Seir and then turn and destroy themselves. One of the marks of God's judgment is the tearing apart of human relationships, of fellowship, of closeness, of connection. Hell is alienation. Yes, first with God himself, but also from all other human and personal contact. Hell is aloneness. That's part of the image of outer darkness, right? Hell may be fully populated by a vast company, but every one of hell's residents could not be more alone. They could not be more alone. There's thirdly, a material plunder. Verses 14 and 15. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Gold, silver, and clothing in great abundance. The same plague as the previous one will strike the horses, mules, camels, donkeys, and all the animals that are in those camps. Right, this is what the enemies of God did to his people in verses 1 and 2. Part of their persecution was the plundering of the people, of their goods. You know, today one thinks of big corporations using their economic influence to marginalize Christians, compel them to go against conscience. That's how the world works, as it wages war against the lamb and against his people. But when Jesus comes to judge the material things for which the world now lives, they will be stripped bare. 
Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. A merchant leaves various sums of money with his servants to invest. And those who make a return on the investment when the master returns are rewarded. And of the one servant who makes no return, Jesus says this, Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take the talent from him. Right? The place of outer darkness will spell material plunder. All the trinkets for which we live, that our hearts crave, to which we run, that we substitute for Christ as the object of our satisfaction and delight, in which we have invested our self-worth, our personal value. If we are found outside of Christ when he comes, they will be stripped away till we are left bereft and bankrupt and barren. It's a chilling picture of the horror of hell. But then in verses 16 through 19, the prophet highlights the great differentiating marks of those who belong either in hell or in heaven. Look at it with me. Then all the survivors from the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of armies, and to celebrate the festival of shelters. Should any of the families of the earth not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of armies, rain will not fall on them. And if the people of Egypt will not go up and enter, then rain will not fall on them. This will be the plague the Lord inflicts on the nations who do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. This will be the punishment of Egypt and all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of shelters. There have been two groups of people throughout history. There will be two groups of people. When Jesus comes, there will be two groups of people forever in the world to come. There are those who come to worship and there are those who do not. There are those who bend their knee in joy and faith and trust before the Lord Jesus Christ and there are those who will not. And the particular celebration the prophet has in mind here is the festival of shelters. It was a harvest festival, as you may know. And here, as people from all the nations come to worship, it seems that the harvest in view is a harvest of people, right? a harvest of souls, a harvest of worship from every tribe and language and nation under heaven. Their great preoccupation year after year, their great eternal business will be the adoration of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. They were once the enemies of the church. Right? They once stood in opposition against Jerusalem, but now they've been made true worshipers, going up to Jerusalem to praise the Lord. But there are others who refuse to praise the Savior's name, who will not go up to worship, and on them will fall God's curse. And this time the curse is the withholding of rain. That might not seem like much of a judgment to us, but to the original audience, right, a rainless existence was a terrible prospect. It's another picture of the wrath of God, right? Shriveled souls, parched, longing like the rich man in Jesus' parable for a drop of water to cool their tongue amidst the flame. Not even Egypt. Egypt, Egypt, you know, they didn't depend on rain for its fertility. They used irrigation from the Nile. So even Egypt, whose ingenuity can normally avoid, avoid droughts, they will not escape God's plague. They're representative of all the nations, right? No one will escape God's wrath if they will not bend the knee in worship to Jesus Christ. Now, do you see the great dilemma presented to us in these two great destinies? There are the perishing rebels, parched, deprived of blessing, dwelling forever in the outer darkness. As we'll see in a moment, there is the church, God's Jerusalem, glorified, rejoicing, forever thrilling to come and worship the holy God 
whose holiness is already reflected in themselves and the world they now inhabit, dwelling in a new creation where all is sacred. And what is the great determining factor that will determine and decide their destinies? One to glory in heaven and the other to the darkness of hell. It's whether or not they will worship, whether they will bend the knee to the king, the Lord Jesus, whether they will come and bow at his throne in adoration and delight and faith and trust. The fundamental issue that will decide your destiny is how you respond to Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? Here's what Paul said of him in Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. All the horror of that threefold judgment described so vividly by Zechariah engulfed his soul as he bore our sin at Calvary. Remember his cry of dereliction from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was his hell, to cry to God, his Father, and for his Father not to answer, to look for God and God to not be there. He suffered the terrible disorientation that cries, Why? Why have you made me sin? He knew that that's what he was in that moment, how the Father was seeing him, how God would deal with him. That's where God's own Son was, in the hell of that unanswerable why, standing before God as the sin of the world, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us. There is Jesus plunged into the horror of physical plague, made to be the sin of the world, judged instead of us, taking hell's horrors instead of us. And everything was stripped from him, wasn't it? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. One of the twelve betrayed him with a kiss, and all of his disciples fled at his greatest moment of need. The world turned against him, mocked him, condemned him, crucified him. Relational panic. Even his meager belongings were torn away from him. The soldiers cast lots, dividing his garments among them while he was nailed, naked, to the tree, materially plundered. The God-man, Jesus Christ, bearing the horror and fury of hell, he bore it. He took it. He embraced it. So that it might be claimed to you this day, the hell's horrors need never engulf you. You need never bear them. Hell is a needless destiny, an unnecessary eternity for you. The fury of hell's flames has been quenched utterly and forever for any and all who will bend their knee in faith and trust in Christ. By the hell of his cross, by his victorious resurrection, Jesus slammed closed the gate of hell and opened wide the doors of heaven for everyone who will trust him, for anyone who will trust him. There is no need that anyone here might forfeit glory and find themselves dispatched to the darkness. Are you unholy here today? If you would but trust in Christ, the Holy One, He can make you clean. He has made provision for you to change you so that inscribed on you forever one day will be holy to the Lord. There is no barrier. There is no blockage. There is nothing hindering you but your own rebellion. Won't you give it up? Won't you lay it down? There is a hell to flee and a heaven to gain. And Jesus today is pleading with you, come, trust me, and gain the glories and joys of the one who fled the horrors and tragedies and flee the horrors and tragedies of the other. Come and rest on Christ today. And if you do, here's the blessed reality that awaits in the world to come. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Here now we see a picture of heaven. On that day the words, holy to the Lord, will be on the bells of the horses 
The pots in the house of the Lord will be like the sprinkling basins before the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of armies. All who sacrifice will come and use the pots to cook in. And on that day there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of armies. See the universality of holiness, right? It'll be commonplace. Remember how back in chapter 3, when Zechariah saw the vision of Joshua the high priest, and he's clothed in filthy garments, and Satan comes against him to accuse him, the Lord intervenes in justifying grace, takes away the filthy garments, he clothes the high priest in white linen garments, pure and radiant. And Zechariah, remember, he interjects his own vision. Let him put a turban on his head. Why, why was he so preoccupied that that turban not be omitted? It's because that was what the high priest wore in this turban. What was inscribed on it? The words, holy to the Lord. That's the only place it was in all of the Old Testament garb. It's the declaration that here, now, all the filthiness is gone. The high priest stands in perfect purity, radiant with the righteousness of Christ. That's why he needed the turban. And now Zechariah here, at the very end of his prophecy, says that the words, holy to the Lord, will be inscribed on everything. The bells on the horses, the pots in the temple, the common kitchenware, every home, everything now, holy to the Lord. Every home dwelling in the new Jerusalem, everyone will be holy and sacred. The holiness of the Lord Jesus will shine in every home, in every heart, will be reflected in every product of human activity, will be seen in every instrument of human culture. Sin will be utterly, irrevocably, universally eradicated. It will be gone. Everything will be holy to the Lord. Every person, every child of God who has labored long and hard and battled with besetting sin here on that day, perfectly holy, unendingly holy to the Lord. The work will be done and your warfare will be won and there will be no sin, no possibility of sin, encroaching on that glorious day or that glorious place. There will no longer be a Canaanite, meaning there will no longer be anyone unrighteous, no wickedness, no idolatry in the house of the Lord. God's people, Revelation 21, verse 26, will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is a holy place. It's the home of righteousness, a world of joyous worship, where everything and everyone is sacred and consecrated to the glory of the Lord our God. So let me ask you, could you be happy in such a place? Here is a great motive to the pursuit of holiness in this world. No one ever earned a place in heaven's holy glories by obtaining holiness themselves. No one ever earned a place in heaven by the pursuit of holiness. But no one could ever be happy in the holiness of heaven who did not make holiness their great pursuit in this life. So what do you think you will like about heaven if you do not love holiness now? Heaven is altogether holy. The angels there are holy. The worship there is holy. Endlessly holy. The thrice holy God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, reigns there, giving holy light to his city. So if you find it hard to come to church, to sit through a service, to hear about God and give praise to him now, what do you think heaven will be like? 
No one can live in such a world but those who are like him, who are made like him by his grace, who have lived like him by the work of his spirit, who are holy. This is a motive to the pursuit of holiness in this life. Heaven is our future home of holiness. So church, the greatest possible incentive to holiness is what these final verses set before our eyes of faith, the glory of God in the holiness of his people under the saving reign of Jesus Christ. If this is the band to which you belong, if this is the Lord whom you love and serve, then you cannot but gaze upon this scene without longing for more of that holiness now that someday will be perfectly yours. Without striving after holiness day by day, without crying out to God, Lord, make me holy to the glory of your name. If you look upon this, your city, on the bells and the pots, on the most common and lowly of objects, all of them ascribed holy to the Lord, you can be sure that God will answer that prayer as you trust in him. And on the great day to come, you will be there. The God who grants you entry into this city by faith in Christ alone will fit you to live there with him forever. He'll bring you the perfect holiness. To God be the glory, both now and forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray for any here who are unholy, who do not know Jesus. Would you show them what Christ has done? Would you help them to flee your just judgment? To Jesus' saving grace, save sinners, have mercy upon them. And for all of us who believe, grant to us an ache and a longing for the world to come, when we will be forever with the Lord, when our daily combat will be over, and Christ's victory will be complete, and upon us all will be inscribed the words, Holy to the Lord. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.